This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. So what is cancer? Well, um, thanks, Jeremy. You know, it's a very simple definition. It's, it's cell division out of control. So if you look in any textbook of biology and they mention cancer, uh, uh, it's, it's, the, it's dysregulated cell growth. All of our major tissues are made up of cells, and these cells are what we say are in a differentiated or quiescent state, performing the functions that are assigned uh, and directed by those cells in that whatever particular tissue. So through a variety of chronic insults to a population of cells in a particular organ, uh, leading to a damage to the respiratory capacity of the cell or the ability of the cell to generate energy using oxygen, when that becomes chronically disrupted, not acutely disrupted. If it's acutely disrupted, the cells will die. But if it's chronically disrupted, the cells have a possibility of transitioning away from oxygen as a driver of energy to ancient fermentation pathways, pathways that don't require oxygen. So cancer cells are simply cells that have lost their ability to generate energy using oxygen, and when that, when that happens, they become dysregulated in their growth. So they become cancerous, cells that, that now are not growth-regulated, so to speak, and the, the regulation of the growth comes from the organelle, organelle called the mitochondrion, which is in the cells, and that maintains the metabolic homeostasis of the cells, so it participates in a normal biological function according to metabolic homeostasis. So when that organelle becomes dysfunctional or corrupted, chronically, the cell loses its uh, growth regulation, growth ability, falls back on dysregulated growth, and then you see it as what we, what we call cancer. How long has cancer actually been around? Well, I, I probably think it's been around since the time of metazoans, which is uh, the time of multicellular organisms. Um, but it's very rare. Uh, it's not a common phenomenon. It's only become uh, very far more common within the last uh, 100 years, I think, mostly in the last 50 years. Um, but, you know, ancestral humans, cancer was unheard of or extremely rare. Um, most of animals that live in the wild uh, in their natural ways, cancer is extremely rare in most cases, not all cases. Um, if you look at all domestic dogs, they are all derived from the wolf, and, and uh, cancer is rare in natural wolf populations, but is the number one killer of domestic dogs. Uh, cancer is, is the number one killer. So clearly, uh, this dysregulated cell growth has a lot to do with many factors that impact negatively on the mitochondria within cells in a particular organ. So, so, yeah, cancer probably, I think uh, Sid Mukherjee wrote his book, The Emperor of All Maladies. I think one of the Egyptian pharaohs may have had evidence of cancer. Um, but it was extremely rare. It, it, yeah, like, I mean, things, I mean, we're, it, it's, it's a disorder, uh, but now it's become an epidemic. And um, uh, so, so I would say that it, it, it's been around for as long as we know biological organisms existed as multicellular 
groups, cancer makes would make its appearance, but it would be so rare, very rare. Where are we in terms of treating it? Well, I think we're in the period of uh, the medieval. I think we're in medieval period. Um, you know, um, you know. In, in all truth, that's what it is. It, it's uh, barbaric. It's medieval. Um, if a person has a cancer, you know, the standard treatments are often horrific. Um, surgical mutilations, uh, toxic poisonous chemicals, uh, massive doses of radiation. Uh, now you're giving these immunotherapies. And um, this speaks to a fundamental lack of knowledge on the origin and biology of what this particular disorder represents. Um, as I said and published many papers, others too, the cells can't grow without the fermentation. They grow in the absence of oxygen. So that clearly tells us uh, how the strategy for eliminating them, because there's only two fuels that we know of, and that's the sugar glucose and the amino acid glutamine, that can serve as energy generators in the absence of oxygen. So all of these cancer cells that we see, regardless of the tissue or organ or whatever they are, they're all fermenters, and they use those two fuels to uh, grow and, uh, and proliferate, and they can't use uh, fatty acids or ketone bodies. Um, and there's a lot of misinformation associated with, I, with what I just said for, for the reason that folks just have not done the correct experiments or failed to understand the biochemistry or have been misled by the data that they've collected. So, uh, um, but I'll tell you, in no uncertain terms, that all cancer cells that we have examined are fermenters, just like Otto Warburg was originally saying to us all. Uh, but for whatever reason, for many reasons, that, that information was misunderstood and also confused. So uh, we have unclarified uh, all of this in our work, and uh, we now know uh, much more clearly how to uh, manage cancer uh, without toxicity, with outcomes that are far superior uh, to what is currently being done. Now, I'm not saying, of course, that um, what we have done is 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 not uh, is all bad. I mean, we have millions of cancer survivors uh, on the planet that have tolerated poisonous uh, chemicals, radiation, surgical mutilation. Um, but they often pay a price uh, for that treatment. Uh, many of these folks are compromised in many ways as the result of the horrific toxic treatments they have received. Yes, they are alive, thank God. But many of them are not normal uh, they, uh, as they were before they had cancer in the first place. So we have to recognize that there has been a significant sacrifice on the part of people to survive cancer. And then there's, it's always looking over your shoulder because in many times the treatments themselves will provoke a disorder, uh, possibly a second cancer sometime, sometime down the road. So, um, yeah, so, so it's managed to an extent, but I think the fear factor that you've mentioned at the beginning is due largely to the fear of being poisoned and irradiated and surgically mutilated. I, I, I think most folks don't, don't, are not looking forward to being treated for cancer. And then, of course, they're told, well, if you don't have these horrific treatments, you're going to die. Uh, so therefore, you're willing to accept torture uh, as, a, as an alternative to a certain death uh, from, from the disease. And a lot of that is, is, is incorrect. 
um, because the, 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 the cancer cells cannot survive without fermentation fuels. So you can target the fermentation fuels uh, without her horrific toxicity. I'm not saying surgery, is, surgery should be eliminated. I think surgery is an important part of the overall curative process. But I think you need to do it at a certain time and place uh, after the tumor has been shrunken to a small state where the surgery can then be curative. Uh, many times the surgery at the beginning can do nothing more than provoke it or temporarily stop it. But again, if you understand the biology of the problem, which is cancer, then the strategies to pro provide long-term management and possible resolution become so much more clear and defined than they are presently today. You've published a hell of a lot of papers and you've spent a long time researching this. Just for context, uh, what led you to researching the concept of cancer as a metabolic disease? Well, you know, we had studied cancer uh, biochemistry, but it was mostly lipid, glycolipid biochemistry, um, which had nothing to do with metabolism at the time. Uh, but we were actively engaged in epilepsy research uh, for many decades. And uh, it was clear from, from our work with epilepsy that ketogenic diets uh, are known an established treatment program for managing epilepsy. And we know that elevated blood sugar, glucose, triggers epileptic seizures. The, me the mechanisms are not clear uh, as to how all that happens, but we do know that lowering blood sugar and making it low and stable uh, is a way to manage epilepsy. Uh, but we were also working with many brain cancer and various cancers in the lab um, from a purely uh, biochemical process. But it, 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 we started looking at angiogenesis, which is the vascularization of tumors. And we realized that calorie restriction or, or fasting uh, significantly reduced vascularization of the tumors and also killed many of the tumor cells. And then we said, well, what, we, you know, calorie restriction is like water-only fasting. The ketogenic diet was developed essentially to prevent, uh, so you don't have to do water-only fasting. So we said, well, what about a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet in cancer? And we found out that it had many of the, many of the same therapeutic properties as did water-only fasting but you could, you could prolong it for much longer periods of time. And it was astounding at how powerful uh, water-only fasting or calorie restriction and ketogenic diets were on this tumor. It knocked out the angiogenesis, reduced inflammation, killed the tumor cells. And we're saying, wow, what is the mechanism by which all this is happening so profoundly? And it led us right back to what Otto Warburg uh, had said many, many years ago, that cancer is driven by um, a glucose fermentation and calorie restriction and ketogenic diets target glucose fermentation. So it became a no-brainer to know that the tumor cell needs glucose, and water-only fasting and calorie-restricted diets and ketogenic diets were a way to lower, to lower blood sugar. Uh, and then, then it led us to further uh, realize that the metastatic cancer cell that spreads around the body and makes is the most fearful aspect of cancer is itself part of the immune system. It's a macrophage. And we know by on the biology of, of, of cell, cell biology, we know macrophages are heavily dependent on glutamine uh, for energy. So that brought us to the idea that not only do the cancer cells need, need the glucose, uh, but they also need the second fuel called glutamine. It's an amino acid. So, uh, and then many papers in the, in the literature had shown that cancer cells require large amounts of glutamine. 
and immune cells require large amounts of glutamine. The metastatic cancer cell that kills most people is part of the immune system. It is a macrophage. We know that. We have absolute hard evidence to support that. Published many papers on this. So we know that the cancer cell cannot survive without fermentation. What are the fermentable fuels? Glucose and glutamine. And then we interrogated them and showed that you, they can't use fatty acids in ketone bodies because those fuels cannot be fermented. Only fermented fuels are used for energy by the cancer cell. So you have to realize the path that I took to knowing how to understand cancer was quite circuitous. It wasn't a direct pathway and say, oh, I can figure this whole cancer thing out tomorrow. No, no, no. We had to go down many paths and we had to look at a large number of uh, amount of biological processes biochemistry, and most important, a foundational understanding of evolutionary biology. Without an understanding of evolutionary biology, it's almost impossible for any human being to understand what I'm saying. So when, 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 when uh, life evolved on, on the Earth, every, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere 2.5 billion years ago. And, and every, every cell that existed on the planet, and we know this from, from, um, from fossil records of individual cells and rocks and things like this, they, they had no oxygen, yet they were growing like crazy. They were, they were unbridled proliferation, dysregulated cell growth, and they were all fermenting at that time. They didn't use it because there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. You know, and we did, we, they were all single cells. And, and, and the idea of where did, where did we come from? Where did, where did life, advanced life come from on the planet? It came only after oxygen appeared in the atmosphere produced by certain photosynthetic bacteria. And then there was a fused hybridization uh, between one form of bacteria and another that allowed a division of labor in the cell, evolved division of labor, where, where one organelle could generate massive amounts of energy using the oxygen. Whereas the other cell was fermenting, but then when the oxygen uh, organelle and the cytoplasm of the fermenter got together, so you, then they were able to integrate fermentation with oxidative phosphorylation. This led to multicellular organisms and the evolution of species on the planet. What the cancer cell is simply doing is falling back on these ancient pathways that existed before oxygen came into the planet. We know because these, these are heirloom pathways. They exist in all of our cells, but they're not major pathways, but they become major in the cancer cell just as they were major in cells before oxygen came onto the planet. So you need to understand evolutionary biology. And if you don't understand evolutionary biology, then it becomes mysterious about cancer, then becomes a great mystery. It's not a mystery. It's very quite, uh, it's absolutely clear what these cancer cells are doing in the, in the light of biological evolution. So uh, they're just falling back. So the default state of the cell is, is proliferation. When the cell is no longer regulated in, the, in a quiescent state, what is the, what, what, what keeps a cell quiescent in the tissue? It's the energy metabolism in that cell driven by the mitochondria. So the mitochondria of the cell, the energy generating organelle, controls calcium signaling within the cell, which controls the cell cycle, maintains the differentiated quiescent state. So when that organelle becomes dysfunctional chronically, it loses, the cell loses its growth control, falls back on its, on its default state, which is proliferation, driven by ancient fermentation pathways, mostly derived from amino acids, the glutamine and, and, the, and the sugar glucose. So clearly this is the, the so how to manage this disease is you got to talk, you have to make, you have to reduce the inflammation in the microenvironment while simultaneously targeting the two fuels, causing the dysregulated cell growth. 
and and it, it's not that complicated once you understand uh, the the connections between the biology. So when I say all this, people who treat who treat cancer in the clinic should know intimately what I am talking about. And if they understand the biology of the disease they're treating, they would say, yeah, absolutely. This is the way we manage the disease. We target simultaneously glucose and glutamine while transitioning the body over to therapeutic ketosis because the cancer cells can't burn ketones or fatty acids, but the normal cells can. So our brain cells, liver cells, all the normal cells in our body switch to a respiratory fuel, which is fatty acids and ketone bodies. And then the cancer cells become marginalized because they can only use fermentation. So if we take away the two fermentation fuels using drugs and diets, you have a chance to manage this. You can, they, they are eliminated. They, they die. They up and die, and, and the body takes control and re, reconfigures itself in a state of metabolic homeostasis with the, with the destruction of the tumor cell without harming the rest of the body. So how would a metabolic therapy differ from a conventional therapy? Well, the first thing you do is you have to look at the metabolic state of the patient. When the patient comes into the clinic, how, how healthy is that patient, other than the fact that they might have a, a tumor of some sort? Well, you find that the, many, many people with cancer have all kinds of metabolic disturbances. They're, they're, a lot of them are, not all of them, they're, they're not in metabolic homeostasis. They have uh, cholesterol imbalances, triglyceride imbalances. Some people have parasite infections. There's bacterial infections. There's an overall state of unhealth, unwellness. Uh, the tumor then thrives on that kind of an environment. So you need, you need to take that person and you need to bring them back into some level of metabolic homeostasis, either by water-only fasting or uh, certain treatments that you, if, they're, if they have parasites, uh, if they have high blood pressure, they have a lot of different, if they're obese, uh, obesity has replaced smoking as the major risk factor for the development of cancer. I mean, all of these things are combined together, put you in a state of, uh, of unwellness. So you need to uh, bring your body back into some semi-state of, of metabolic homeostasis. And then once, once in that state of metabolic homeostasis, then you can use, and that's mostly done by diets and some, some, some drug, uh, uh, drugs that will facilitate some glu glu uh, glucose targeting. And then you can um, uh, come on with the glutamine targeting drugs and, and use them very, you have to know how to strategically use this. It's not as maybe as simple as I'm saying, because you can't go into the, you, you can't go into this patient and dump massive amounts of glutamine-targeting drugs because you're going to paralyze the guy's immune system that also needs the glutamine. So again, you have to understand evolutionary biology. You have to understand the, the, the different kinds of cells and what they're designed to do before you can use metabolic therapy. Now, how does that differ from what we're doing t currently? Well, of course, a person is diagnosed with cancer. The first thing they, many times, they want to do a surgical debulking. Uh, they want to use a high-dose chemotherapies, a, a whole cocktail of chemotherapies. Uh, radiation is in there. Uh, let's irradiate this poor guy. Uh, sometimes that's okay. Uh, many times it's not okay. So you have to know uh, the state of the tumor in that person before you start using the various tools uh, to manage the disease. I'm not saying we need to throw out all of the conventional treatments that we have for cancer. But once you understand that it's a metabolic disease, you have to reevaluate how you are using the tools that you have and the access to these tools. Surgery, surgery is very, very important. However, shrink the tumor down to a very indolent state and then surgically remove it. Makes sense, right? Don't go after the tumor when it's at its most aggressive state for fear of spreading the tumor cells throughout the body, leading to a disseminated problem. 
no longer a focal localized problem, but a disseminated problem. People need to know that. Physicians and oncologists need to know those things. Okay, chemotherapy. Yeah, chemotherapy can do a, do a great job, especially if the tumor cells are metabolically stressed. So if you're stressing them to the point where they're nearly dead, and then you come in with a very low dose of chemo, you could possibly get rid of it with minimal, if any, toxicity to the body. Why is that not being done? Because there's a lack of knowledge on the biology of the disease they're treating. So once you understand the biology of the disease you're treating, the strategies for managing this become very clear. And most of the time, we're not doing that in the clinics today. I mean, I could go on and go through each minutia of the steps to get a person that would have a, a, a tumor, regardless of the state, as long as the person is in a pretty good state of health, uh, or at least they feel pretty good when they're first diagnosed. It's very hard to use metabolic therapy for cancer patients who have been brutalized by radiation, chemo, and surgical mutilation, where, where, where they're on death's doorstep. And, and now you're asking these poor folks to, you know, do water-only fasting and, and this kind of stuff. Their body, their cell, the normal cells of their body have been so compromised by the treatments, the normal cells cannot rally to, to, uh, to support metabolic therapy. It's been hard, much harder, let's put it that way. Well, that, you, you have to separate uh, prevention from treatment. Okay, they, they, these are two fundamentally different, different processes. I mean, once the person has cancer, then they, they have to be treated to eliminate the tumor. So you said, you know, what are the conventional ways we're doing? I went over that. What, what is the matter? Now, to prevent cancer, uh, I don't think most people, I, I don't want to say most people, I don't think the majority of people in, in society, majority, care about prevention. I, I don't think they care at all. And th why, uh, why I say that? We have an obesity epidemic. In the United States, we have an obesity, and it's spreading around the world. If people really cared about cancer prevention, you wouldn't find a fat person walking around on the streets. Uh, they would be so. They would know that that condition puts them at risk. You might as well smoke six packs of cigarettes a day. You know, uh, we we stop smoking cigarettes in in the United States in a large a large part because of the fear and the, uh, the, the, was putting people at risk, uh, secondhand smoke for this and that. It was a societal pressure. But there seems to be no pressure uh, to stop the obesity epidemic. And as I said, obesity has replaced um, smoking as a risk factor. So if people were really concerned about cancer prevention, you would find very few obese people. So, uh, um, so th th that tells me that there, there's no real interest. And, and the other thing, too, is uh, highly processed carbohydrate foods together with sedentary lifestyle, uh, uh, together with exposure to chemicals in the environment, all put us at risk uh, for developing cancer. So it's not just one thing. It's usually a combination of things. That's all related to the prevention aspect of it. And uh, as our societies become more, more and more technological, uh, we, we, we find ourselves uh, having less and less exercise, uh, eating uh, on the run, highly processed carbohydrates on the run, minimal exercise, uh, your exposure to chemicals in the environment, the plastics. You, you put it all together. Any one of those or combinations of these can damage the uh, oxidative phosphorylation capacity in a particular cell, a group of cells in a particular organ, thereby initiating uh, what we would call a tumor or cancer. So, uh, so you have to look at the, the problem from both the prevention side and then the treatment side. But I can tell you from my experience, most people want to know uh, if they have cancer and are diagnosed with it, what can you do for me? Uh, well, you should have, you should have put, never put yourself in that position. In the, well, that's 
past. You can't, you can't talk about that. So all you can do now is how do I manage what I have? So you have to separate prevention from treatment. Uh, and the strat now, they are overlapping because people who do water-only fa- are, are aboriginal ancestors who rarely had cancer were in a diet and lifestyle uh, that they evolved in. Thousands of years in a particular diet and lifestyle with cancer very, very rare. What are they doing? Well, they're mostly exercising. They're, 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 eating, they're not eating highly uh, large amounts of, they didn't have processed carbohydrate foods. So the foods were mostly natural in their environment. And, um, and they had very little cancer. But, you know, we're not in that time. We're not, we're, we're not all going to go back and live in a paleolithic, uh, even though some people say, I'll do the paleolithic diet, which is, you know, basically, you know, meat and small amounts of vegetables. But, you know, that's all prevention stuff. Uh, what people, more people are interested in now is like, is like what, what are the treatments that, you can, that I can use to manage my cancer uh, without, without the toxicity? And, and metabolic therapy requires the patient to be a major participant in the management of their disease. So they have, they're largely responsible. Uh, the, the oncologist is there, should be there to assist them and know when and when not to use certain things in the, in the armamentarium of treatment strategies. But the patient themselves, when we developed the glucose ketone index calculator, published that, that allows the cancer patient to know whether they're in nutritional ketosis. And when they're in that state, the tumor cells can't grow very fast. It's then when you then use certain drugs together with a, a systemic uh, situation that'll make the drugs work much, much better with lower, lower dosages, and therefore kill cancer cells without the toxicity. Again, you, uh, you, it, it's a work in progress. I'm not saying we have the solution completely worked out yet, but I published the paper, Press Pulse Therapeutic Strategy, which uh, is the framework uh, for what I'm speaking about. And I think the future of cancer management and prevention will be metabolic approaches. Uh, it is a metabolic disorder. It's not a genetic disorder. And this is another terrible, terrible misinformation uh, when they think cancer is a genetic disease. The genetic problems in cancer are there, but they all come as secondary downstream effects of the disturbed energy metabolism. So when they speak of the uh, epidermal growth factor receptor gene being targeted, this is nonsense. Absolute nonsense speaks to the profound lack of knowledge on the part of anyone that would say something like that. Those cells are dependent on fermentation, so, uh, and not all of them have mutations in the epidermal growth factor receptor. So what are you doing uh, to, to give people the false information? It either speaks to the lack of knowledge, the poor patient, well, they're not supposed to know this, but the person that would say we're going to use immunotherapies and this kind of thing, yeah, they work on a few people, but they also cause hyperprogressive disease, which kills the patient before the cancer does, because it starts attacking that same epitope and other organs and cells, and, and, and next thing you know, you're, you're, you're dying from the treatment rather than, let me tell you, it's immoral to treat any member of our species with a therapy that has a remote possibility of harming or killing them. Um, and this is, apparently that's ignored uh, and, not, and not discussed because uh, many, many people die from the cancer treatments before the cancer kills them. And, and uh, this, is, this is, in my mind, this is an immoral situation. Is there any legitimacy to aneuploidy theory? Well, it's, it's a downstream effect of disturbed energy metabolism. I mean, we've looked at all that. 
the aneuploidy comes from disturbed energy metabolism. Chromosomes are replicating in, in, in disordered ways. And all of the genetic architectural abnormalities that you see in a tumor cell are all downstream epiphenomena of damage to the respiration. So when, you're, when your energy metabolism becomes disordered, you get aneuploidy, you get a whole slug of different kinds of mutations, you get all kinds of genetic abnormalities. These, these, are, these are downstream epiph epiphenomena. And another thing, we're now looking, we're now looking at uh, all of these so-called mutations in normal cells, these so-called cancer mutations, the ones that were said to be drivers, the driver. We're finding that if we take, like, you're a young guy, you look pretty healthy to me. Uh, I can guarantee you if I took some tissue from your lung or your liver and we did a big genomic screen, we'd find some of these cancer driver genes in your tissues in normal in cells that are perfectly growth regulated, not disordered. So, so we're finding that these things that were supposed to be driving the cancer are also present in normal cells that never develop cancer. So this is the, this is the conundrum uh, that the field has to, has to address, that most of what we have been studying in cancer is downstream epiphenomena. The dysregulated cell growth, downstream epiphenomena of disturbed energy metabolism, angiogenesis, the abnormal vascularization in tumors, downstream epiphenomena, avoidance of apoptosis. Why these cells aren't dying? Because the organelle controls death, the mitochondria is dysfunctional. The kill switch is broken, therefore the cell bypasses its natural program cell death mechanisms. Everything, once you understand the biology of the cancer, you'll understand that 90% of what we're studying is mostly downstream effects of this fundamental problem of the cells. When you refer to a ketogenic diet, what is it that you mean? Well, you know, this is a very ambiguous thing. I think it's gotten out a little bit out of hand. Um, I don't look at it. I look at what is the diet that's going to bring your sugar down and your ketones up? Can you do that with a Mediterranean diet? Can you do that with a vegan diet? Can you do it with a carnivore diet? Whatever it is, it's lowering sugar and bringing up ketones. So any diet that would lower glucose and elevate ketones is the kind of diet. Can a ketogenic diet do that? Yes. Can it, will it do it if you eat too much of it? No. So again, you have to know that you should not eat large amounts of lard in order to uh, uh, say, oh, I'm on a ketogenic diet. I can eat you know, a big stick of butter. Um, you know, the, pro the problem is, is that what what is that diet? Is that diet effectively lowering your blood sugar and elevating your ketones? Because if it's not doing that, then it's not a ketogenic diet. So um, that, again, we have cancer patients that have done remarkably well on Mediterranean diets, vegan diets, carnivore diets, and they all have low glucose and elevated ketones. So sometimes if you eat too much ketogenic diet, you, you induce insulin insensitivity, preventing glucose from getting too low with the very, again, you have to understand the biology of the problem. So that's why we developed the glucose ketone index calculator, which cuts across anyone's kind of a cultural uh, diet issue and just say, what's your GKI? You can be Asian, you could be African, you could be Caucasian. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference what religion you are. It doesn't make any difference what cultural background you have because it's all based on the biochemistry of your body, which is similar in all of us. So if you can bring down your sugar and elevate your ketones, uh, regardless of, of how you're doing that, that's then puts you in a state where the tumor cells begin to suffer metabolically. Are there specific types of cancers that respond better to metabolic uh, therapy? Well, I don't know if you could say better. Uh, is there any cancer that doesn't respond to metabolic therapy? Well, we, we would have to find a cancer that would have normal mitochondrial function, um, and we have never found that. 
Every major I published papers. I went back and powerfully screened the entire literature on looking at the structure and function of mitochondria in cancer cells. And invariably, they have abnormalities. Um, if they have abnormalities, that means they're going to be dependent on fermentation. So most, most malignant aggressive cancers are highly dependent on, more highly dependent on fermentation than, say, some of the indolent, slower-growing tumors. Um, don't forget, indolent and slower-growing tumors uh, can be surgically debulked. Uh, depending on where they are, they could be, even radiation can zap them if they're not. Uh, it's when they spread around that you have, that you have to be a little bit more careful about it. My, my view is that, no, I, I think all cancers to one degree or another will be, will be uh, sensitive to metabolic therapy. What is the role of inflammation? Well, inf inf what is the origin of inflammation? Infl the origin of the inflammation comes from the fermentation metabolism of the tumor cell. When the tumor cell starts to ferment, the waste products of fermentation, which are largely lactic acid and succinic acid, acidify the microenvironment, leading to uh, an inflammatory uh, condition. As a matter of fact, cancer for many years was called a wound that does not heal because the body views a wound that when, when you get cut or contusioned, uh, your body elicits a very rapid response to heal the wound. So what are the signals that the body recognizes when cells are damaged? Well, what happens, there's usually a hypoxic event somewhere in the area of the contusion, leading to the production of lactic acid, which acts as a signal for the immune cells to come in and try to heal the wound. And in time, you end up with a scar, and it takes a while for the inflammation to go down. Uh, you, your body has a process by which it heals wounds. The cancer cell is viewed sometimes by people as an unhealed wound because the immune cells come in to see the same kind of environment in a cancer microenvironment as it would see in a wound environment. Interestingly enough, these immune cells start throwing out cytokines and growth factors to facilitate wound healing. And what those same molecules do in a cancer environment is facilitate the growth uh, of the tumor. So the body is acting in an incorrect way when it sees a cancer. So uh, it's doing what it's programmed to do in the wrong context. So, uh, and what's driving this inflammation in the microenvironment is the fermentation waste products of the cancer cell. Uh, on the other hand, chronic inflammation on a skin or an organ or something like that can uh, eventually damage respiration in a population of cells in the inflamed area, thereby leading them to dysregulated growth and a continuation and exacerbation of the inflammatory process that was already initiated. Again, you need to understand the biology of the problem before you can make uh, uh, logical strategies for managing this. What you're talking about applies across the board from humans to animals. Yes. I mean, the dog cancers that we see, I mean, most animal cancers, we study them in mice. You know, mouse have cancer. The, di the difference is our basal metabolic rate of the animal. You know, a, we, a mouse's lifespan is, you know, two or three years at the most. Uh, everything happens in much faster period of time. Dog, dogs are a little bit closer to us. You know, there's rats. Uh, many animals in the, uh, in, uh, can get cancer, but it's not as prevalent as it is in dogs and humans, I mean, for sure. Because dogs are eating a diet that's very different from their original ancestral diet of raw meat, mostly. Um, but, um, yeah, so you have to look at... Uh, the, when I look at cancer in a mouse, 
or a dog or a human, um, they're all fermenters. Uh, they're all using glucose and glutamine to, to, because the mitochondria is defective. Every cancer that we looked at in the mouse, the dog, the human, the mitochondria in the cell is abnormal, and therefore the cell will be fermenting. And what is it fermenting? Glucose and glutamine. It cuts across all species because this, the cancer is falling back on an ancient pathway that existed before oxygen came into the atmosphere 2.5 billion years ago. And if people don't understand that, they'll never understand the, the, the biology of the disease. Most people that I know or know of uh, who have ended up with cancer, are, they obviously get to that point where they are fearful and they end up going down the road of chemotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. But are there a lot of cases, success cases, of those who went the metabolic route? Yeah, very excellent question. Uh, we've published a number of these cases. Uh, you know, um, we, we, people call them anecdotal cases. Um, oh, I, you know, this is an, oh, he's only anecdotal. You know, we got this guy. I suppose he, he has a glioblastoma. You know, most people are dead. This guy's out nine years. Uh, well, it's an anecdote. Um, and he, we're collecting all these anecdotal cases. As a matter of fact, um, the, the documentary film that will be coming out um, later this year called The Cancer Revolution um, has now collected uh, large numbers of these so-called flukes, anecdotal cases. Uh, most of them are advanced stage four metastatic cancers of the breast, the brain, the colon, the lung, uh, you know, the kinds of cancers that kill most of the patients. Uh, these guys, many of them and most of them are doing really fine. A and people can reach out and talk to these folks and ask them what they did. Um, many of them, they all did some form of metabolic therapy, whether it was by itself or combined with standards of care. Um, uh, the, the group in, in Turkey uh, uses a combo of standards of care using the lowest doses of chemotherapy with metabolic approaches. So there's some hybrid systems going uh, out there. And again, this is a very uh, infant developing uh, strategy. And I think as more and more people understand the biology of the problem, the strategies for achieving uh, long-term uh, success will be uh, only improved more and more. Uh, as I said, there are many uh, new drugs uh, drugs that were, we, we found some drugs that uh, had very minimal, if any, effect in the clinic. Then they were, you know, they were canned because they, they, their toxicity was too much or their therapeutic efficacy was not uh, as well as what was expected. And when we, when we use those, those drugs uh, with a ketogenic, calorie-restricted ketogenic diet, they became super powerful in killing the cancer cell. And the paper we've had, we have it now in bioarchives for people that want to look at it, childhood brain cancer. Uh, uh, childhood brain cancer is the number one cancer killer of children. Uh, we published a paper showing how we can use a diet drug combinations uh, to really, really da uh, uh, reduce uh, the, um, the malignancy and management, increase the management while reducing the malignancy of, of brain tumors, aggressive brain tumors in children. We even developed a, a, a pediatric model to show how low doses of these drugs that were, th that were not used and, and uh, parasite drugs like mambendazole, not that cancer is a parasite. People make mistakes. They say cancer is a parasite. No, it's not. Parasite's a different organism. It's not the same. But they use similar pathways for energy metabolism. So anti-parasite drugs 
um, together with metabolic therapy, part, is part of the metabolic therapy cocktail. So you, again, you need to know the vulnerability of the tumor cells, what they can and cannot do, and that clearly defines the kind of strategy you, sh you should be using to kill them. So again, it, it's again knowing how to use the tools that are already available. I'm guessing the claim cancer can be cured is just a, a very sloppy claim. Very sloppy. I think, I think uh, because everybody thinks, you know, you're going to, oh, I, I have a bacterial infection. Let's use antibiotics and cure my bacterial infection. They're thinking that's the same for cancer. I, I think we should look to say, can we manage cancer effectively without toxicity? Um, can, you, can you maintain a quality of life while knowing that you have had this condition? Um, uh, is it possible to live a healthy, normal life having had uh, cancer? Uh, uh, and I think, yes, the answer to those things is yes. And the answer is, well, how do you know if metabolic therapy will cure your cancer? How, how do you know whether standard of care is going to cure your cancer? Um, people say, oh, you know, I haven't had my cancer for five years, and they say I'm cured. And then in year six, you come back with another tumor of some sort. So uh, maybe of the same kind or a different kind. I always say that if you have cancer, say at your age, you're a young guy, uh, suppose you had a malignancy in colon or something like that. You did metabolic therapy, uh, and you and you ended up dying from old age at 97 years old. But you, your tumor never never occurred. On your deathbed, you could say, "I think my cancer was cured because I'm dying from old age, not from the cancer." But who who would know something like that? But but the answer is, how long can I live after having a diagnosis of cancer? Uh, 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 when they say, oh, you know, you, you have a terminal. Uh, listen, we're all terminal in one degree or another. The, the issue is you want to make the cancer terminal. You don't want to be, make the cancer you ter make you terminal from the cancer. So, so um, but I think, yeah, I, I think once you understand how to control the system, keep your body healthy. I mean, we're working on all that right now. It's really exciting. I mean, we're finding many, many different ways to eliminate cancer cells in a very different kinds of strategies, diet, drug, cocktails. And once this becomes more standardized, it's going to be, it's going to be a manageable disease, I think. I know somebody who um, was diagnosed as having cancer. She then had her breasts removed, and it was a complete and utter disaster. She had to go for, uh, what do you call it, uh, surgery, to, cosmetic surgery to have new breast implants, etc. It's years later now. She says that she's that the cancer is in remission and she can live a, no, a normal life, but that just seemed so extreme to me. Yeah, well, that's because she probably was diagnosed with one of the BRCA, BRCA, BRCA mutations. Uh, the BRCA mutations um, are are not a hundred percent guaranteed to develop. They put you at a higher risk. We call them secondary risk factors, um, not a primary risk factor. A primary risk factor is any factor that is always 100% associated with the outcome. So uh, BRCA is considered a risk factor because about 50% of women who have the mutation never develop a breast cancer or, or an ovarian tumor or whatever, and then 50% of them do. So you say, oh, I'm at a higher risk. That is true. BRCA, BRCA also disrupts the mitochondria in the cell. So again, the, the mitochondria organelle within the cell is the origin of cancer. When that, when that cell becomes chronically disrupted, it leads to a fallback on a fermentation metabolism. BRCA1 and many of the other so-called inherited risk factors all do the, a very similar thing in one way or another. They compromise the ability of the mitochondria to generate energy through oxidative phosphorylation. So if one were to, be di uh, to say, oh, I did a gene screen, I found out that I have BRCA1, it puts me at risk for uh, breast cancer or ovarian cancer, like Angelina Jolie, the, 
actor made made many of this famous by having her breasts and ovaries removed or something along along these lines. This, like you just said about your your friend. Um, but if you also put yourself on a, metabo a, a, a metabolic therapy, uh, a, a diet that would keep your blood sugar low and your ketones elevated, it becomes extremely difficult uh, for the BRCA1 or any, any of these inherited risk factors to, to put you at risk, uh, make that, make that uh, risk factor. So that's your choice. You can either have the breasts removed or you can radically change knowing that the BRCA1 will, will elicit the tumor by damaging your mitochondria. What's the best way to keep your mitochondria healthy? Burn ketones. How do I burn ketones? Water-only fasting, calorie restriction. Look at the glucose ketone index calculator. There you'll know if I'm in ketosis. That's going to be extremely hard for the mitochondria to be damaged when you're in therapeutic ketosis. Why is that? Because ketone bodies are referred to as a super fuel. They can generate tremendous amount of energy in a mitochondria without producing o reactive oxygen species, as was clear demonstrated with my late great friend, um, Bud, uh, um, Bud from the NIH, okay, Veach, Richard Veach from the NIH. Well, he and I would talk, and, and Cahill from the Joslin Diabetes Center, we would talk about these things. Uh, there's papers on this, ketones, the super fuel. Look it up. Veach did all the, the bioenergetics on these fuels. So people that would be at risk uh, with genes that may be, uh, lead to a higher risk, you can, you can still manage these by, by lowering sugar and elevating ketones. What do you mean by calorie restriction? I mean, it sounds pretty self-evident, but... Yeah. No. You know, we did the same thing. In the mouse, uh, we were doing our work in mice, and we were calorie restricting the mice, and then we were seeing these tremendous changes in... in fat, uh, uh, triglycerides, cholesterol, all the different, and the glucose and the ketones. And we were doing a 40% calorie restriction. Like they, would eat, they were eating only 60% of what they would normally eat in a day, which is a 40% restriction. So we all said at that time, do you think that would work in humans, eat, eat less? Well, of course, you lose some weight when you, when you do that, for sure. But it wasn't lowering the blood sugar or elevating the ketones to the same extent. Uh, but we only, only when you do water-only fasting, no food, for like 10 or 12 days or 15 days, do you see the benefits that this mouse had. So we're, we're starting to... Right? <laughs> yeah, it's a big shame. <laughs> no, but, but that's why we developed... Um, what, we find, what we found is, is that, listen, you, 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 people say, oh, this guy can talk and all this kind of stuff, referring to me. Uh, uh, did I try? Yeah, I tried it. Did I like it? No, it's horrible. Uh, you know, try going cold turkey and not eating, man. It's brutal. I mean, you start looking at your dog in a different way. I mean, <laughs> and it's, it, 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 <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, this is the truth. You know, so, uh, so what we found is what we found is that when you go on a zero carb diet, uh, uh, and measure your blood sugar. You all of a sudden, after after several days, like a week or ten days, your blood sugar goes down, and your ketones go up, and your body starts to slowly adjust to this new state. And then when you jump into water-only fasting, it's not like jumping off the side of a building. It's like jumping off a, a low step. But when you go into water-only fasting, cold turkey, it's like jumping off the side of a building. I mean, the the, uh, the effect on your body is acute. It's it's very similar to person that was addicted to alcohol, cocaine, or nicotine from cigarettes to go cold turkey. It's hard. Um, you have to have massive self-discipline. But if you gradually wean yourself off, the, the brain is addicted to glucose. Glucose is like a, a chemical. 
it's like a it's like a drug of some sort. Um, and you, people say, oh no no, okay, stop eating, just stop eating, and see after two days how you feel. You're going to be going nuts, not nuts, but you're going to be angry and you're going to be uncomfortable, uh, unless you understand the discipline. Why put yourself through that kind of a torture when you can eat meat uh, or eggs or whatever? Uh, or it's harder, a little bit harder on vegetables because the, the carbohydrates in vegetables are a little bit more than that in meat. I'm not saying you can't do it on a vegan or a vegetarian kind of a, a diet. It just happens faster with a carnivore kind of a diet with eggs and meat. Um, you know, and people say, well, I, I'm just going to go cold turkey and just stop eating altogether. Okay, if you have the discipline to do that. I mean, we have, we have folks that have completely eliminated their cancer with these long water-only fasts that last for 20 days. Um, uh, sometimes longer. Uh, uh, your body is an unbelievable machine. I mean, we store fat for the times of famine, and uh, you can that fat is mobilized and it's used to make ketone bodies and fatty acids. The liver burns the fatty acids while at the same time making ketone bodies. So your brain, so you don't go, you don't go unconscious. Uh, your brain is then burning ketones. Um, but that's the way we did. But you, I always say it's better to transition slowly into this new metabolic state. Uh, rather than going cold turkey and jumping in, uh, it's like jumping into an ice pond. You know, it's it's just a shock to your body to do that, because you've been you've been eating car high carbohydrate foods for so long that you've become addicted. And when you try to break that addiction in a cold turkey way, it can be quite uh, challenging. But if you can gradually w w ease your body into the new metabolic state, it becomes far less challenging. And it's a way. Once you're in that state, then we use specific drugs and procedures to then go after and kill these tumor cells. So it's a, it's a, it's a very strategic planned process uh, to do this. But again, the patient has to be a major participant in the management of their disease, knowing the biology of what I'm talking about. Is it recommended, therefore, to try and maintain a lifestyle of ketosis? Well, some people can do that. My, my, my good friend Dominic D'Agostino is always in a level of, the, of ketosis. He prides himself on, on being. Our, all of our Paleolithic ancestors, uh, during our, the, most of the existence of our species on the planet, we were always in a state of, of ketosis, mainly because highly processed carbohydrate foods were not present in the environment, uh, mainly because we evolved as a starved species. I mean, we had to hunt. Uh, and gather the foods that we didn't have fast food uh, convenience stores on every corner uh, or drive ups and all these kinds of things that we have today. I mean, our ancestors had to work hard uh, to get a meal and they were always in a state of ketosis. And how would we know that? Well, go back and eat what the Paleolithic man ate and have the same. You go out and try to track down, go out into the forest and see, try to kill a deer with a bow and arrow. Uh, 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 slay him, cut the skin off, get the organs. I mean, you're using a lot of energy, first to track down this guy, second to kill it, and then the food you're eating, uh, cooking it over an open fire. Well, there's no buns and rolls here, you know, bread and confectionery. I mean, this is, in order to survive, you're going to have to do this. And your body is going to be always in a state of ketosis because you're not having carbohydrate foods. You're using a lot of energy, and the foods you're eating are low in carbohydrates, so therefore ketones... Uh, are going to have to be elevated in order to be in this in this condition. Now, oh, you're saying, well, this guy's crazy. He must, well, we're not going to do that. Of course, we're not going to do that. So, uh, but the temptation of a of a sub uh, a subway sandwiches and donuts and, and, and uh, Mexican food and every every national food is on every corner. 
and it's tasty. It's designed specifically to make you want to eat this. Uh, uh, and, and, it's, and then it, your blood sugar is high, your ketones are low, and your insulin is high, and the next thing you know, you got type 2 diabetes, and you got o- overweight, you got all these different things, because the convenience and, and taste of this stuff is, is so easy for us. Speaking to you has relaxed me a lot. I, I'm getting the sense that perhaps cancer isn't something to have this major grotesque fear about. Oh, I agree. I think, I think you know, I mean, would it be, I, I don't think we should have the, the fear of doom and, 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 and death um, when we hear cancer. We, we now know that, oh, crap, I have to change my diet and lifestyle to get rid of this thing. Um, and uh, some people will say, well, I'm never going to change my diet and lifestyle. I might as well die. Think, well, that's their choice. Uh, but if you have options right now and you know what you can do uh, to bring yourself into a, a new state, and that's not to completely eliminate, um, you know, oncology and standard of care, I, I think I think those pro- procedures could could be very effective under certain conditions. It's just that many I think many cancers can be managed quite effectively. Yes, diet and lifestyle changes are not easy. I'm sorry. Um, uh, we're all sorry about that. We all are comfortable in doing what we do, but when you're confronted with a potentially lethal disease uh, and you're going to try to manage it with poisons and radiation, uh, yeah, I think you know you might you might come out on the losing end sometimes. If you're not on the losing end, you're going to be debilitated in in some significant way. On the other hand, if you know what to do metabolically, that you can merge the two together. I know some people who just absolutely will not take any chemo or radiation, and they've done really well uh, on managing their cancer. But they, again, that's a massive change in diet and lifestyle to do that. Would you mind giving me a prognosis? How do you see the future of cancer research panning out? It's a very difficult question, um, and it's difficult because of um, dogmatic ideology. And uh, when, when the entire, most of the, I would say the entire, most of the field of cancer thinks cancer is a genetic disease, you, you, you have the, uh, the perpetuation of the crazy uh, misguided strategies that we currently have. Um, and it's not, a, it's not a genetic disease. It's a mitochondrial metabolic disease. And until, until that change in paradigm and, and understanding the theory that underlies the nature of this disease, until that becomes known widely on the part of both the patients and the establishment, we're not going to see any real change in the death rates that we're seeing. In the United States, we have over... 1,600 people a day, every single day, dying from cancer. In China, it's over 8,000, mainly because their population is so much larger than that of the United States and most other countries. But, but you have all of these people dying and suffering immensely uh, and being treated with toxic poisons and stuff. Uh, that's not going to change uh, radically until the theory under which the disease is recognized changes. So, so once you realize that it's a mitochondrial metabolic disease manageable through the targeting of fermentable fuels while transitioning the body over to non-fermentable fuels, only then will you begin to see a significant drop in the numbers of people dying from cancer. So, uh, and the establishment must come to this realization. 
the population of people on the planet must come to this realization. Okay? Without this realization, it'll be business as usual, status quo, no change. So I don't know how long it's going to take. I know what I would do if I were to have cancer, and most of the people that work with me uh, would know what to do. Uh, we're publishing papers. We're telling people this is the way it is. Uh, I mean, um, I don't know what to say. I mean, the, the biology is clear. The science is clear to me uh, and our group. So if that can become clear to the population, then I think we'll see a real change. But I don't know when that will happen. The key principles, what would you say? Well, I, as I said in, my, in, our, in our papers, I think most people understand what sugar is. Uh, I realize it's a little bit more difficult to understand what an amino acid is, but our, our blood is loaded with amino acids. And glutamine is the most abundant amino acid in our body. It's a very critical amino acid for normal functioning. Unfortunately, the dysregulated tumor cell uses that same fuel that the normal cells will use. So I, I think people just need to know that cancer grows, can grow in the absence of oxygen. Okay, everybody knows what oxygen is. We're breathing oxygen. You are sitting here breathing. I'm sitting here breathing. That oxygen is allowing our cells to stay alive, make energy. Cancer cells get energy without oxygen. That's what the, their feature is. So that means that what do they use? The sugar, glucose, and the glutamine. They can't burn fatty acids or ketone bodies. All right? So, so people know, should know what fatty acids are. Uh, ketone bodies are simply a water-soluble breakdown product of fatty acids. You want to measure ketones? Get a glucose ketone meter, and you can look at it for yourself. And then they can know. So simple, uh, blood, lower your blood sugar, elevate your ketone bodies, and uh, you're in a state of metabolic, better metabolic homeostasis. So um, I, I think I try to bring it down as, as, as simple as I can, but I understand uh, these words. And I understand that in almost everybody on, the, not everybody, but the scientific illiteracy is like rampant throughout the globe. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You know, <laughs> so, so, uh, and it runs from the top right down to the bottom. <laughs> so, it's, I mean, what do you, I mean, I try to, I mean, the only thing I haven't done is put it in crayon. Um, but <laughs> I don't know what else I can say, man. It's just the way it is. Is there a way that, uh, that I can follow your work? Um, do you have yeah. a website? Well, uh, we're trying to develop one. Yeah, but I publish most of my papers open access. So, I mean, all you have to do is look my name up, Thomas N. Seafried Publications uh, uh, on Google, and, and you'll see a whole bunch. Everything that I'm saying, I, I, I have evidence to support. I've done the experiments. Uh, we've looked at these. We've tested these things. Uh, our newest paper is out in bioarchives on the uh, childhood brain cancer. Uh, the dog cancer, I published a major paper on dog uh, showing how metabolic therapy can, can without drugs or, or anything, just, just get rid of a mast cell tumor. Um, so all of this is published, and people are using this stuff. They're starting to look into it. So I'm not hiding. Everything is out there. It's just that you just gotta just have to know where to go to look for it. It says, just my name and open access. It's all open access. So you can read it. Download it right from the web. You can read it right off the face of your, com of your computer. So it's there. And many of these, and many of these interviews are there as well. So, um, and we're moving forward. We're still, we'd like to develop clinics. We'd like to be able to train young, young physicians coming into the system to know how to do metabolic therapy because they're going to be, the future is, is metabolic therapy for cancer management. So once people know how to do this and understand it, it'll be the, the standard of care. It'll become the new standard of care.
If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.